Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 326 with my guest, Jenny Jaffe. Today's episode is sponsored by First Day Back. It's a a new podcast from Stitcher, and the concept is pretty simple. How does a person return from an event that changes them? Well, the new season tells this incredible story about a woman who accidentally shot and killed her husband, but has no memory of it. How do you come back from the worst thing you've ever done when you don't even remember doing it? first day back. Subscribe now in Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. I was trying to think of something else to throw in there. It's like a circus. It's like a... a, a and that's what I came up with. Um, pretty much um, the same amount of sadness and avoidance as uh, as last, last week. I've been working with uh, my therapist on sitting in the feelings of... Um, of my marriage, uh, I don't know what the verb is to, to use for it, but my marriage breaking breaking up, and I don't want to feel the sadness. And it's the times that it's worst is when I go let the dogs out. And um, I love seeing them, but it also reminds me of um, how little I see them, that I really only basically see them for about uh, maybe 20 minutes, uh, five times, five times a week. And I think it's related to the fact that I've been um, pounding sugar right before I go to bed. And for some reason, uh, marshmallow fluff, uh, jet puff is is the 
the brand they have at the grocery store. And I remember Marshmallow Fluff when I was a kid, but I guess, I don't know if they don't make that anymore, but um, I just, I tell myself, it'll be, it'll be 10 minutes before I'm ready to go to bed, and I'll tell myself, oh, we can get through this. We don't need to, we don't need to eat sugar. You don't need to eat half a chocolate bar and eight tablespoons of marshmallow. Uh, and then it's like something grabs me by the scruff of my neck and walks me into the kitchen. And it's like I'm a robot just doing it. And, and when I open that marshmallow, the jar of it, and it is just perfectly flat and shiny, you know, because the night before I've taken big spoonfuls out of it. And so it's got those gouges in it, but overnight it settles and it's like, Maybe it's the hockey player in me, but it's like a perfect sheet of glass. And it's it's almost sexual to me because it's so aesthetically pleasing. And I, uh, so I've been talking with my therapist about it and, and she gave me a tool to try to use this week, which is connect, acknowledge, and release. Connect to the feeling, acknowledge that you're having it, and then release it. And so the image that she gave me to try is a plane full of cargo, touching down, letting the cargo off, and then taking off again without the cargo. And the one, I don't know, that that popped into my head immediately of what for me sitting through an uncomfortable feeling is like, is it's like a cop that has pulled me over and is indefinitely at my window. And I can't control how long it's going to be there. I just have to sit there and endure it. And it's not going to kill me, even though it's making my heart it feels like it's going to kill me. Um, and so maybe, maybe I'll start using this tool now. Because I, you know, I've used other combinations of coping tools in the past when I don't want to feel a feeling. I've used uh, ignore, bury, resent. That that has gotten me through many a picnic and wedding. Uh, isolate, masturbate, and nap. Perfect tool if you're out of clean clothes. You don't even have to leave the room. Uh Oversleep, overthink, overeat, that is a good one. Because when you're feeling like you're not enough, well, you're doing more than on all of those things. You're sleeping more than the average person can. You're thinking more than the average person can. And you're eating more than the average person can. You might look at it as a failure. I I see it as uh, as a tremendously successful Uh <laughs> Oh, I'm done. I'm done with this bit. I am done with this bit, but uh, we'll we'll see how we we'll see how it goes. As I told you before, um, I'm working with a sponsor from BetterHelp.com, and uh, I enjoy working with her. Um, go to BetterHelp.com/mental and fill out a questionnaire. You get matched with a betterhelp.com counselor and you get to experience a week of free counseling to see if online counseling is 
a good fit for you, and you got to be over 18, and um, I'm very happy with uh, my experience there and, and my therapist. She's awesome. And again, that address is betterhelp.com slash mental. I have a quick two little things to read to you before we get to the interview with um, Jenny Jaffe, who is, by the way, if you listened to last week's episode, she is the girlfriend of last week's guest, uh, Mike Levine. Uh, Mike Levine. I had my hand in front of my face when I said his name. This is an awful moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself a tad disheartened and uh, she writes, a survey of mine was read aloud on an episode, and I had a feeling what I wrote would have been crazy enough to be chosen. However, my excitement of hearing an encouraging word or two after talking about something so embarrassing and shameful that I had never admitted before quickly ended. I understand that what I talked about wasn't normal, but after all of that, I ended up just being mocked, and that was it. This made me feel terrible for the rest of the week and even more ashamed about it and almost made me want to stop listening to the podcast. I got over the initial sting and have moved on, but I think if a survey is chosen to be read on an episode, that something nice or encouraging should be said, or at least a simple thanks for sharing. I know it wasn't meant to be hurtful on purpose, and I have a sick and twisted sense of humor myself, so the humor on this podcast doesn't offend me, but you have a certain power that it couldn't hurt to be a little more careful when dealing with people's heartfelt confessions." And I uh, am genuinely sorry that uh, that I hurt your feelings, and I appreciate you um, letting me know. Uh, I also got another email from somebody um, who, um, I don't know if the, the right word is uh, that their feelings were hurt, uh, that they felt uh, marginalized because on a couple of episodes back, I joked about, um, you know, the category on the surveys is what kind of a environment were you raised in? Uh, and you can choose from a bunch of different ones. And one of the choices is stable and safe. And 99% of the time when I read stable and safe, I go on to read the rest of that person's survey and it's anything but stable and safe. But we do. We do get people um, who listen and who are guests on this podcast, who were raised in a stable and safe environment. Jenny Jaffe, uh, our upcoming guest, is a perfect example of that. Um, and so I want to apologize to anybody that uh, felt um, that what I had said was uh, I kind of glibly joked that um, if you were raised in a stable and safe environment, uh, you wouldn't be a listener. And... Um, I want to be as inclusive inclusive as possible uh, on this podcast. Um, you know, I think sometimes my fear of putting out an episode that isn't compelling in some way, I start tap dancing, trying to be funny or to um, be more than I am because I guess in that moment I th- I feel like I'm I'm not enough and um and that I'm going to be in a sense abandoned that the the podcast is people are going to stop listening to it and since it's my um it's how I make a living uh that I'll be 
sad, alone, homeless, broke. Uh, my teeth will fall out, and the only thing available to eat will be corn on the cob, and I won't be able to eat it, and I'll just be sitting in a uh, halfway house watching people enjoy corn. <laughs> Welcome to my brain. So apologies to anybody who, who felt marginalized. And, um, and I want to say, when somebody writes something uh, that expresses um, a critique, um, I, I'd like to think that I'm pretty good about deciding whether or not to take it in, whether or not to read it. And, um, I feel like the points, because there's sometimes somebody will, will email something in and I, and I will think, sorry, man, that's on you. That's, this is your own issue that you are filtering through. And I don't feel that I did anything wrong, but, um, I, I think they make I think they both make a valid point and um, and honestly if I hadn't done the work on myself in support groups and therapy I I would have been destroyed by that criticism I would have engaged in the black and white thinking and thought I'm a fraud I'm a terrible person I, who am I to host a podcast on this kind of a subject when I'm hurting people's feelings and um I know that that's not the case. I'm, uh, I'm a human being who can't stop eating marshmallow. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Lavender, and she writes, My emotionally neglectful father texted, texted me for the first time in over a month asking how I was. I was thrilled for a full two seconds until he sent me a second text. Sorry, meant to text your brother. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting and different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the active side in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. I'm here with Jenny Jaffe, who's a writer, performer, mental health advocate. Um, what am I missing? Oh, gosh, I know. Redhead. Redhead. Uh, it's, it's late. I don't know. Um, yeah, that says about the size and shape of it. Uh, you're how old? I'm 26. 26. Um, you went to school at NYU mm -hmm. where you studied uh, acting? No, uh, TV um, writing. Oh, TV writing. Yeah. And um, you moved from Manhattan out here mm -hmm. recently? Yeah, very recently. Uh, what are the broad strokes of struggles past and present? Um. The official diagnoses are um, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, OCD, and depression. Mm -hmm. um, the broad strokes are that I first became suicidal when I was about 10 years old. So I was 
younger than a lot of people think really happens. But that was like sort of my first serious bout of depression. But what it really stemmed from was um, the level of anxiety I deal with uh, made it feel not worth it to keep living. Mm, Um, That's so heartbreaking. Yeah. And the fact that it happened at that age, too. And like the, the other broad stroke that I think is really important to hit here is that I had just about the most supportive family environment you could possibly have. I really lucked out. I would not be here. Um, except that my mom is a social worker and my dad uh, is works in healthcare too. So it's mm-hmm. a, everybody was very like aware of all this. Um, and then I ended up getting on meds around that time. And uh, the next kind of serious um bout of depression again stemming from the uh level of ocd and the level of anxiety and the volume of panic attacks i was having uh was like 15 to 17 years old Mm -hmm. um and those two years are really a blur for me which is one of the sort of interesting (laughs) things to think about when it comes to this is um a lot of what I know about those years are pieced together by things that I either wrote in diaries or that my parents have reminded me of, or, you know, the various people have sort of filled in for me. Um, and it's not that it's all been great since then, but it's been, uh, I think it can never be as hard as it is sort of the first time you experience different things. Cause then it's like, you've been through it before. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes the devil, you know, at a certain point. Did you feel like the second time when it hit you between 15 and 17, that it was a deeper trough than it was at 10? Um, I don't know. Cause I think at 10, I didn't have it named like at 10. It was this, this sort of like amorphous thing. And the, they were difficult in different ways. And at 10, the difficult thing was not knowing that being suicidal was a thing and not knowing what, what I was feeling entailed and not knowing that I could ask for help or how to and the ways I wanted to sort of reach out uh it I I had the language for it by the time I was a teenager you know I had thanks thanks to your parents thanks to my parents thanks to years and years of therapy um but I it was a lot harder the second time around the second time around was like um the it was really the panic disorder and the OCD that were the hardest thing to deal with at that point um and my life just sort of became this blur of like going to doctors and like sort of keeping myself alive as best I could if you could paint a picture with uh, just snapshots from your childhood give us a sense of um the history of how you viewed yourself how you viewed the world moments that were transformative or just stick in your brain for some weird reason um or or are emblematic of your family dynamic yeah because one of the things I do want to know from you um, is where where your parents went right. Because so often on this podcast, the parents fail their kids. And I know there are good parents out there. And yeah. I want to highlight what is right um, instead of it always being about what went wrong. Um, I think... 
I'm somebody who's a really good, and I feel like I have to, the part of the reason I always am really, it's really important to me to include all this in my story is that um, I think we have a problem talking about mental illness as a physical illness. And for me, the elements around me, everything in my life was about as close to perfect as you can get. No, you know, no family's perfect. No childhood is perfect, but no big trauma, parents together, um, a lot of love, you know. Um, Were emotions encouraged to be discussed? Oh, yeah. It was, you knew that there was no right or wrong emotion, just yeah. how you expressed it was. Yeah, exactly. Emotionally yeah. intelligent sort of uh, yeah. house uh very inclusive and warm and welcoming and are to this day. Um, but I was born with a chemical imbalance. <laughs> I, you know, I am, I am mentally ill. I was born mentally ill and that was nobody's fault. Um, Does it run in your family? To certain, ex to a certain extent, I think there is some mental illness that maybe went unacknowledged in some previous generations. And, um, I think there's a little bit of, you know, anxiety maybe in my parents, but I think I really kind of drew the unlucky genetic straw as far as um, this sort of level of chemical imbalance goes. Um, and like, I have been in therapy for 20 years. So like everything there is about my family, I have. Told. So you started at six. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, that might be later than I started. But yeah, I start, my parents got me to therapy very, very young. So the uh, anxiety and OCD was expressing itself uh -huh. already. Yeah. How, how early did it express itself? And the second how did I could it... express anything, it was mm -hmm. fear. Um, you came out of your mom and you put the yeah. back of your hand to your forehead and said, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. That was basically it. No, I think it was just, yeah. um, I never slept through the night. I still don't sleep through the night. Um, but I... Um, could never sleep. I always had night terrors from a really young age and was just very fearful of everything. And I think that what got me into therapy initially was just like, I couldn't go over to other kids' houses. I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of dogs and loud noises and big stuffed animals and balloons and, um, God, you name it. What probably a, was afraid what of a it. Hell, what a hell for a little kid. But, and I think that, and I think that this was very confusing to a lot of the, Luckily, my mom intuited that this wasn't me just being spoiled. It wasn't me being like, I won't go there. It was a genuine fear and like a, I, that there wasn't anything I could do about it. And I was trying and I didn't want to be in my brain. I didn't want to live like that. I, I never felt like I could interact with other kids. <laughs> yeah. And, and even at that young age, uh, I'm going to assume that you intellectually understood that you didn't need to be afraid of the stuffed animal or the loud noise or that, but you just knew my body reacts when I'm around. I that. had a, yeah, I had a panic reaction to a lot of things that it's not necessarily, I didn't have any trauma. You know, it was like, I'm a really textbook chemical imbalance case because I don't have any sort of childhood trauma that, you know, I'm just so lucky in all these ways. And, um, you know, I'm sure we'll get to, project you were okay at some point but like i've spent so much time collecting these stories and um it's really made me appreciate give me as family. many yeah as many things that stressed you out and <laughs> made you fearful um uh in in childhood 
elevators, mall Santas, different things on TV, songs. Hold on for one second. As you name each one, give us what your brain tells you would go wrong if you were exposed to that thing. Or was it not that specific? Um, some of them it isn't that wasn't that specific. But with something like elevators, I'm still very afraid of elevators. Um, that's one of there's you know I've been afraid of everything at some point and just about everything I've come through. Um, elevators are one of the enduring ones. The idea of being trapped in elevators is the scariest thing in the world to me. Like I really I'm very claustrophobic. Um, so for me it was always like just the small space. The being trapped. I'm afraid of flying for the same reason. I do it a lot now, but as a kid, that was a very scary experience for me. I wouldn't go to the bathroom alone. How about being wedged in a coffin that's too small and then buried under uh, 500 tons of dirt? Are there, is there a person who isn't afraid of that? <laughs> just like, being, is just there, fucking with you. Oh, man. That's, the, that's literally the most terrifying thing of all time. And it, it's like, for me, the idea of being trapped in a in a space that's so small that I can't sit up, uh, I could feel my heart starting to beat fast just just thinking about for, it. For me, it doesn't. I can sit up in it. I wouldn't want to be trapped in this room. Yeah, yeah. I find comfort in small places as long as I can physically uh, move about. It's the lack of windows yeah. that would get me. It's the lack of like being able to see the outside. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, it, it, the the list of things I wasn't afraid of would probably be shorter, and I really don't know what that list would be. I was afraid of my mom at one point. I thought she might be a vampire. She gave me no reason to make me think she was a vampire, except that she's allergic to garlic. And my kid brain decided that meant she was a vampire, because I was reading that um, the Bonicula books. Uh-huh. Remember that? And... Um, I just got really freaked out. I was like, she's a vampire. I was like six years old. So was it hard for your parents <laughs> to do the uh, medicate or not medicate decision? Yeah. And my parent, my mom and I have talked about this a lot because I think when I was growing up, especially, there was a lot of like sort of Oprah specials about over-medicated kids or whatever, yeah. the mid-90s. Yeah, that's why I wanted to know. Um I don't think it was an easy decision, and I think it was a decision that came. I wasn't medicated till after the suicidal stuff started. Okay, give me the progression then of um, it getting to that that point, that breaking point at ten. Um, I don't quite remember like the exact progression. I just know so I, you know, I spent my childhood just like afraid of everything and sort were, of were you just in your room or what were you it was a lot yeah a lot of in my room did I you have friends was school doable at all i did have friends i didn't have a ton of friends mm-hmm. uh social stuff was kind of pretty hard for me and you know in sort of separate like maybe more normal ways but a lot of it was i didn't feel able to participate in yeah. in so much of normal childhood development um and i think um that, yeah, I spent. A, I remember spending a lot of time in the library. The school, I like the school library. That's where I kind of felt safe, and um, I was always good at school. I was. I always knew teachers liked me. That was always a good thing for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, very easily scared. I didn't like it when anything even remotely scary happened in a class or in a book we were reading or whatever. 
what were other places you enjoyed other than the library and learning? I mean, home. Mm-hmm. It was hard. You know, I can't. I, I liked we, my family uh, went to Tahoe a lot growing up. And, and you were raised in San Francisco? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I went to Tahoe um, a lot on the weekends. And it's funny because there are a lot of things that in retrospect, talking to my parents, I realize um, were done because because they made me happy and like and one of the things was like i felt i liked being in tahoe it was it's sort of peaceful there it's quiet it's beautiful beautiful um and we used to go up a lot and my parents were like that's where we had happy memories because you i didn't really have you you didn't have a lot of happy times as a kid and i was like i didn't (laughs) that was where i was happy and um i i remember I don't remember at what point I kind of switched from the anxiety to the depression stuff. Um, I don't remember having the, I don't remember having connected in my brain to like, I am so anxious that I don't want to live anymore. Um, in retrospect, I can kind of see what that was and, you know, feeling like a burden and feeling like, well, nobody's gonna want to be friends with me. Like I'm really difficult to be around and I, I can't I feel like I can't do anything about it um and it is frustrating because it is like why are your parents like coddling you why don't they make you do any of this stuff it's like I like if you had seen me if you'd met me I just this was not normal childhood stuff I don't remember thinking I want to die I just remember think because I because I remember thinking my parents would be really sad if anything happened to me so I would hope an accident would happen and then they wouldn't think that I did it and what I remember thinking is like if I could just get hit by a car or you know something like that um, then they wouldn't have to be mad at me (laughs) but like I don't want to keep doing this and I don't want to keep doing this to them that is so heartbreaking (laughs) think about that little 10 year old girl if you could go back in a time machine and spend time with her, what would you? Well, I started Project You Are Okay to do that. Um, I very much, like, that's very much what it was, is me trying to reach back in time. Um, because it's not just it's not just worth living. It's things are just better than you think they will be. And, like, um it gets harder for a while. That's that's the, if I went back to my 10 year old self, I'd be like, Oh, it's going to be a uphill battle, but the other side of it's worth it. Um, and the website is, uh, project. You are okay. You, the letter you are okay. Um, dot org. Dot org. Um, but the, the kind of breaking point as far as the depression stuff goes, um, was my parents were going away for the weekend and, that was the weekend I was going to kill myself. Um, I had a plan that involved safety scissors. And um, I, my grandma was going to watch my sister and I, and I, she came over and she and I ended up kind of talking. And I don't know what I said to her, but it must have worried her enough that she said something to my parents, and my parents took me with them. My parents wouldn't leave me alone. Which was like... Like, yeah, I, without my parents, like, I really don't know. Um, I don't know what would have been. I can't imagine what would have happened if I'd been in any other family. Um, And I went with them. We had a lot of conversations that weekend. (laughs) 
Uh, I'm very grateful they let me ruin their romantic weekend. Um, and when I got back, they took me to a child psychologist and they put me on Prozac. And I remember within like 24 hours, like for people who are like anti-medication for ch- for children, I, I mean, I understand where they're coming from because I do think they're can be a tendency to medicate without follow-up treatment without sort of like trying different kinds of things but for me like it was so obviously chemical and within 24 hours my mom always says like it was like a different kid not like a different kid but like a it was like a kid it was like Mm -hmm. i remember just it feeling like when i got glasses for the first time i've worn glasses since i was really young and being like oh you can see details in the trees um it was just like that. It was like, oh, like it is, it is lighter now. It is easier. <laughs> and um, for a while, I didn't really deal with that kind of stuff. I dealt with the sort of normal, like preteen stuff, and I dealt with the middle school bullying and whatever. Um, Do you remember any specific moments of feeling like now you were in the stream of life? Um, now you were experiencing what other people. Able to I almost don't remember any of that until much later. I think I the even when you cut out the depression, the anxiety level was still. It was interesting when I had to reframe myself as an adult, as someone who's able to participate in things that adults participate in, and like I don't need special accommodation for anything. You know, I don't. I stopped. I used to think of myself as like, oh, well, maybe everybody's going to go do this, but like, clearly I can't like just also be involved in that because I was used to not being able to sort of participate in a normal way. So. And that's not the case anymore. Yeah. I mean, now it's like, it's very interesting being 26 and having gone through um, the level of intensive therapy that I've gone through. And, and um, I think I... I'm at an advantage now because it's very hard to throw me for a loop. Like I've been through so much. Nothing is going to kill me. Like if I didn't kill myself, nothing's going to kill me. Um, you learn to put your, <laughs> put your head down and ride things out. That's one yeah. of the gifts of, of depression. Yeah. And like, there have been tough times. Like there have been in recent years, there have been things that have come up that have been really tough, but I have the language to work on it. I know how and where to seek help when I need it. Can you give us specific examples if you're comfortable talking about it? Because tools and, and, you know, learning how to get through things is, yeah. is always a great thing to, well, the, to talk about. I mean, about. the best gift I was sort of given, I think, was the gift that therapy was not something to be ashamed of and something to be sought out and something to take advantage of. and um, And... Therapy gives you the tools to talk about your feelings in a productive way. Like, that's really what therapy is more than anything. It's not a solution. It's just um, a sort of... Kind of a steam uh, valve. Yeah, exactly. So I'm really good at reaching out when I need to reach out. Um, That's, you know, something. And then the other thing is my meds are really important. Um life source for me <laughs> i've started doing something where every day i tweet when i take them because i think um it's holding me accountable to taking them 
And also, I think it's sometimes like people who take them don't just don't want to. I got, went cold turkey off them a couple times as a teenager because I was like, I don't, you know, teenage how teenagers get, and I was sort of like teenagers. I did it when I was forty eight and almost died. Yeah, no, I, but I think it's yeah. like when you're on it, and I think especially because I was on it from the time I was like ten, I was like, well, what am I like without these? I don't mm-hmm. know what I'm like without these. Turns out, what I'm like without those is catatonic. So. uh it's just not worth it for me not to do that. Um, I had, yeah. Um, sorry, where was I? Where, where, where uh, I was asking for specific examples of your experience helping you navigate um, a crisis or a situation or, you know, maybe some backsliding that you've experienced. Yeah. Well, I had a sort of like new anxiety symptom that I hadn't experienced before crop up a couple years ago, um, which was disassociation. And I'd never experienced that before. And um, it's basically the experience of feeling like you're floating outside your own body or like derealization of the world around you. Like you don't Mm -hmm. feel like things are real and it really um, depersonalization, depersonalization. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just a new thing I did when I was anxious and I don't know sort of where it came from necessarily um but it really (laughs) shook me and was really not fun and would last for like a couple days at a time and um and i would get through it because i know i can get through these kind of things i would intellectually tell myself like nothing is forever like whatever this is you get through it um, I did that on a bad acid trip one time in high school. <laughs> well, I'm not saying uh, there weren't at one point <laughs> drugs involved. <laughs> Nothing hard. <laughs> so my parents aren't listening at this yeah. point. Um, but uh, yeah, so you, there was you, there was some kind of there was some edible weed involved. Yeah. Uh, a couple months prior that like had a really bad effect on me i think so for a you while. think it, it might have uh, kind of uh, triggered that in you yeah or i think it kind of triggered um just some really bad anxiety stuff and okay. i think i mean any kind of brain chemistry altering anything is a pretty bad idea for me i think um i've never tried any of the drugs that sort of feed on serotonin but i can't think of a worse idea for me because then it would leave you depleted after the high wore off. Yeah, and like I don't have enough serotonin to begin with, so right. like that's not just in that's just not in like yeah. massive supply for me. Um, but so like when I was experiencing this, and this wasn't a symptom I had experienced before, I didn't panic. I got in contact with my therapist. Like I, um, you obviously have a psychiatrist as well, or an, I do, an I do. Okay. I talked to my psychiatrist too. Um, I've got, um, you know, uh, a lot of, just a lot of resources I was able to like articulate to, um, my boyfriend at the time and like, you know, some of my friends, what was going on and saying like, Hey, if you notice this thing, like this is what's going on with me. And, um, and that was all really helpful. Would you just get really quiet around them? Is that, is that? Um, How would it look to this an outsider? I don't know. I'm unfortunately very good at making it look like I'm not having a panic attack at any given mm-hmm. time. It's just you know one of those skills you develop. But um, you'd make a terrific hostage. Thank you so much. I really would, honestly. <laughs> like that's the thing is, like I I think I'd be very good in an emergency situation. Yeah. 
um just because I'm like, this is the mode where I'm at all the time. I've felt this way like since the election. Everybody's sort of got this existential dread. And I'm sort of like, yeah, that's I live with that every day. Like my anxiety level isn't higher, it's just like valid now. I'm like, cool. Welcome, guys. Yeah, Welcome to where I am I wrote, at all the time. <laughs> I wrote a, a piece for like on Medium or something just because I was like, I think, look, this is my time to shine. Like, this is your beginner's guide to existential dread. You have to get out of bed in the morning. You have to force yourself to eat something. Um, you have to stay right here as best you can. Um, not obsess about the future. Try not to obsess about the future. I'm better at talking about that than actually not doing that. But. Try not to engage in black and white thinking. Yep. Yep. Um, but yeah, so I have all those sort of resources and, you know... And more than anything, like the, you know, the biggest resource is like, I know how strong I am. And that's really an interesting thing. And I, I've talked to a lot of groups of kids who are going through some pretty significant mental illness struggles. And um, the thing I always say to them is like, you are coming out of this with this unshakable core. And that's something a lot of people will never have. And that's a gift that you're being given. And, you know, there's the... <sighs> I hate talking about it as being a gift in any way because I think um, that sometimes keeps people engaged with their mental illness in a way that they don't need to be. Like, you are not going to be funnier if you're not taking your meds. You're not going to be more creative or more interesting. And, uh, you know, and I'm a writer and there's always the temptation to be like, oh, well, if, you know, there's like the madness and the genius and it's just... um, there t- the the comedy can be a coping mechanism but it's it's um it's correlated it's not causal you became maybe became funny to help fight those demons off you aren't funny because you have those demons um and in fact th- there's that movie frank which i'm obsessed with mm-hmm. um i think it's really great but the sort of lesson at the end of that is like that everybody's sort of obsessed with this like mad genius and like who is this guy and at the end, um, spoiler alert, um, the main character goes to talk to Frank's parents and they're sort of like, actually, like he was a musical genius before everything that happened to him happened to him. Like he would have been much more successful if he hadn't been dealing with all this other stuff. And it's really one of the only pop culture things I can think of that, Mm -hmm. that posits that. And I think that's really cool. Uh, you know, I like to think of uh, mental illness, trauma, you know, all the addictions. I, I like to think of those things as forced uh, gym memberships for our soul. <laughs> oh, wow. I like that. Yeah, it kind of is that. And I think it it creates a lot of compassion. It creates a lot of, um, you know, not that there are things that you couldn't have otherwise, but um, it it just changes the way you are in the world as a person, I think. I think especially if we reach out for help and we connect yeah. to other people who are similarly struggling. That, that to me, has been... Because, you know, I look back to when I was depressed and self-medicating with alcohol. Uh, it, it was... I don't think that that was a gift to me or anybody else around me. Um, but once I got help and started to learn how to cope, that's when the, the gifts began to kind of show up. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Um, 
So yeah, let's go back to, okay, sorry. to your childhood. And yeah. was there a thought that you wanted to finish? No, I'm sure we'll circle back around to it. I think I was just going to say that I think learning to be really radically honest with my feelings and, and being open has been the best thing I've ever done for everything from my relationships and my friendships and my career and my ability to help other people because I, I and then we'll get to it I'm sure but like this isn't stuff I talked about until like three years ago uh, I would love to talk about it now because I don't want us to forget it because I think it's it's such an important topic to talk about how to express your truth in a way that respects other people yeah well, like what I've really come to is you can never be wrong when you're just telling your own story. If you're just saying the facts of your own story you're, and how you, and feel. you how you feel, you're never incorrect. Um, it's when you start to assign causes to right. things that it can become complicated. Right. Um, but I think I went into adulthood very emotionally stunted in I was very emotionally mature in a lot of ways, having come through what I come through, but very socially stunted because I just hadn't had a lot of normal teenage development experiences. So I was very young. Um, and I really thought people will like me more if I'm not difficult. And my version of not being difficult was to be the friendliest and the most like um, outgoing and the, you know, most... To be the perfect accommodate. friend. Right. You know... To not have needs. I think I was... I don't think... Exactly. But I think that can also come off very annoying and that can come off very like, well, I'm not going to tell you things because nothing's wrong with you. Like you have this perfect little house and it's perfect. Um, uh, you know, just uh, someone described me as chirpy recently. I think that's a solid way to put some of how I am and definitely how I was sort of outwardly in my Late, late teens and early 20s and was that an authentic part of you you were just misrepresenting how large of a part of you it was yeah i think it, i mean absolutely i think it was authentic i think there was a there is a joy to being alive for me that i think comes out of the fact that i feel a little bit like i'm living on borrowed time like because i feel like i wanted to die for so long that I don't want to die is a miracle. And like, I'm so happy to be here and happy to be doing what I'm doing. And like gratitude is so easy. Yeah. And when, when you've experienced, uh, wanting to turn your keys in. Right. Right. And I think, um, it's, I, I've got this sort of philosophy just that like, it is very cool to exist. I feel like it's very cool to exist on this planet and things are bad, but it's better than there being nothing. And that's the alternative, right? Um, so, and, and things are very good. And I have to remind myself that all the time. And I'm like, and right now things are really good for me. I've, when I look at the bullet points of my life, I'm like, I'm living the life I wildly hoped i'd have and that's crazy to me that's amazing that um i've really gotten to do that and that i'm i'm getting to do more things i never even dreamed about so if we were to assign a number um of your anxiety your depression your panic attacks when they were at your worst like 11 okay <laughs> uh and that would have been uh, as a teenager between 10 and 17 uh, at some point or Oh my, I mean, like most of the time, like it was just, 
I was just um, bogged down in it. I was mm. I was uh, governed by it, you know? Okay. What would that number be on a given day now in the last couple of years or Like a four months? maybe. Like at its worst, like a seven. Like and that's still that's really good for me. Like And that's not something that lasts months. No, and like sometimes it's a couple days and I've had I've had weeks where it's been like I am feeling depressed, but a lot of times it's been like, I know this is situational. This is because I'm out of a job right now, or this is because, you know, whatever I went through a breakup or something that's a little more, I don't, I don't want to say normal, but something that, um, people who don't go through major depression, depressive episodes deal with too. Um, and even when it's like, I don't know where this is coming from. It's like, I'm going to ride it out. It's not forever. I have that ability to do that now um what, what are the tools that you reach for first when you start to feel like i don't want to get out of bed or i'm terrified to face the day um one interesting thing i have noticed is like i a lot of my life is adjusted already it just comes pre-adjusted to like i know that getting out of bed is scary for me i know that i wake up multiple times a night with night terrors i know that I'm afraid of more things than most people, but it's not so bad to live with now because I've been doing it for so long and successfully, and I've gotten to accomplish a lot despite it. And um, I make little bargains with myself throughout the day. That's a thing I've noticed I do. <laughs> These are like small tools, I guess. Um, but like, I'll save certain podcasts or whatever, like, or something I want to listen to or watch until I know I have to get up. And like, I bargain with myself, like, if you get out of bed, you just listen to this thing while you're doing whatever um i'm never i have my headphones in all the time that's a thing i didn't notice was a part of my coping mechanism but i um i do consume a lot of media and comedy especially and i think that's where my love of comedy comes from and my initial comedy education very much was me trying to drown out voices in my head um so it's a lot of like little bargains throughout the day. Like you just have to eat something. It doesn't matter what it is. You just have to eat it. And once I eat something, it's like you have to take your meds now. You just have to take it. Um, and it's it is it's a little. It sounds exhausting, and it is a little exhausting. But it's you know after you do it enough, it just you, you don't even think about it. It's anymore, built into though. the rhythms of who I am, and so. Yeah. You know, that's what I reach for first. Like, okay, have you done the checklist? Have you done the stuff? Um, What's the checklist? You know, just like the, have you eaten something? Have you gotten out of bed? Have you gotten out of the house in a couple days? Have you taken a shower? Have you, um, you know, put on clean clothes? All that kind of stuff. Opened and you, your mail. Open your, oh God, there's nothing scarier. I like, but now that I have um, a day job that I go to that does really help with that sort of like you have to you're going to work you have to go to work um and a day job that i love at that so is it a writing job it is yeah oh good what are you writing i for? write for disney i write for kids tv oh that's so awesome and that, well the one of the ways that that's especially awesome for me is i'm like i get to go and make something that's going to make a kid's world seem happier and safer and it's aimed at the age i was when i was very suicidal and that's yeah that's huge for me wow. um when I was uh, really depressed, I ta I've talked about this a lot, but um, I used to do something I call Dread Pirate Robertsing myself, where I'd promise I could kill myself after a certain thing. 
And so, like, as a teenager, it was like, after the next episode of The Daily Show, you can kill yourself. <laughs> like, you just have to, you have to wait. But so it's one of these things where it's like, so now it's like, I'm going to write stuff and I don't know who's doing the same thing about something I've participated in. And um, definitely doing comedy is a really big part of that. And that's why it feels very special to me to be able to do that. And definitely working kids TV and definitely a kids show about a healthcare robot and about, What's you know, it called? Big Hero 6. Okay. Um, it's coming out this year, later this year. Um, so, you know, the get, get, like having an adult life, I have to sort of contend with, but you know, it's hard. Like I, I get a lot of anxiety around unopened emails and unlistened to voicemails and that kind of thing. But I think a lot of people do. And one of the biggest tools that's at my disposal now is Twitter. And when I'm having bad days, the ability to be like, guys, today sucks to 13,000 people on the internet is great because it's not only me being able to see out loud what that looks like it's also being able to get back gosh me too i'm so like a lot of times people don't want advice about it getting better they just want to hear somebody else's going through it a lot of times i just started this podcast exactly i'm sure you get the same thing too where it's like because you're open about it you get people reaching out to you and it's beautiful and like i you know so i do have a lot of tools sort of at my disposal breathing exercises and stuff talk about those um my friend mara like swears by this one from the panic attack workbook and you have to Mm -hmm. exhale first and that's what makes it different is you're exhaling and then inhaling and exhaling and counts of eight she recorded it for project you are okay as a breathing exercise and Mm -hmm. people really liked that and she's talking about a former guest uh mara wilson oh yeah oh yeah yeah um and uh those breathing gifts online are really great. My boyfriend makes me little custom breathing gifts, which I always think is mm-hmm. like the sweetest thing. Um, like what? What's a custom breathing gift? Oh, just like he'll just do a gift of like either him or like something that's sort of like breathing in rhythm, like an just, audio thing. No, it's just like visual, but you oh, just okay. it's just to breathe with that because sometimes I forget that I haven't breathed mm-hmm. in a while. Yeah. Um, I'm really into my fidget cube right now. I have a little fidget toy. I don't have it. I put it down because I think it was, I didn't want it to be loud, but, um, I got it online, uh, and it's just like little things to play with on each side. And, um, that's really helpful because I'm always, I jiggle my legs and, um, I like grab stuff and like, I make little sculptures out of like whatever's around and. Um, I compulsively fold paper cranes. My desk at work is just covered in oh, really? <laughs> paper cranes. Um, so, yeah, it's a. Uh, but it's it's cool to have created for myself sort of a community of people who understand. Uh, you, the more you're open about things, the more people are open to you, and the more you realize nobody's cool and everyone's scared. And that's sort of my philosophy. Nobody's cool. Everyone's scared. And we're just all in this, like, bizarre, like, life together. Trying trying to do the, the best we can. And I really do think on some level all humans are doing the best they can to cope with the unimaginable horror of, like, the gaping maw of existence. <laughs> um, but, like, we get cool colors and we get flowers and, and dogs and stuff. So it's, you know, it's... The, the thing that I also am struck by in talking to you that seems to run through all of this is 
you seem to have gotten to a place where you don't shame yourself. And I think that's so, I could be wrong, but that to me is like one of the biggest hurdles that once you remove that, things become easier. Yeah. I've given, I've learned to give myself a lot of leeway and I like myself in a way that I haven't liked myself historically. What, What got you to that place? Um, Honestly, deciding not to be a hypocrite once I started Project You Are Okay was really huge. Um, Like, if I'm going to have a site where basically people are putting themselves out there and being the most authentic version of themselves they can be and telling their story, and I look at them and I'm there's there's nothing but pride and awe that I see, you know, when I look at them, um, then I've got to be able to do the same thing, and. Did it feel phony at first? Yeah. And I think it's changed a lot, the way I've been able to talk about things over time and the amount I've learned about all kinds of things, you know, privilege and, and, um, and, you know, just the amount of being able to kind of recover of memories of stuff that I went through, sort of just like through talking about it. It's all been really interesting. Um, and the amount of comfort I have about talking about it. I don't have to gear myself up for it anymore. I don't have to dress it up in any way. I just say what it is. And Can you give me an example? And try to remember what your next thought was going to I don't remember. I you know just um I don't have I don't police the language I use around it in the same way uh just in terms of carefully framing things and for fear that somebody's going to disagree with it or for take exception or be just hurt? Or- no, more for fear of judgment or like wanting my story to seem neater and wanting it to be more linear and wanting there to be a clear recovery and, and all that, you know, as a person who tells stories, wanting a wanting an end. Which is one of the hardest things when you're depressed is is articulating what you're feeling because to even sometimes form a sentence when you're catatonically depressed is exhausting and making decisions is exhausting when you're depressed so the idea of and if you're a perfectionist the idea of i have to perfectly explain this thing i can't even really understand that's going on inside me yeah Um, it's why opening up i think is so hard for the depressed person who has never sought help before yeah but they don't know that it's isn't done in one perfect fell swoop. It's just tiny little bites one day at a time. And, you know. And it's, I think, one thing that was very frustrating for me when I was kind of in my early 20s and, like, I ha- it was just I had one panic attack and it really set me off and I was just pissed at myself. And I was like, we've been through this over and over and we've gone through every treatment and we've had the best and, like, it's still, why is this still happening? And at some point you're like, this is a chronic illness. Like, I live with a chronic illness, and it gets better and worse, and it will get worse again, and it will get better again, and I have to not be frustrated with myself. But I think I have the tendency, in part because I think of myself as having been a difficult kid and having been a difficult teenager, you know, not in the typical ways, but just in the ways that it was probably, it was very difficult to be someone taking care of me at that time, that there's a wonder wonderkind element of me that like i have to be better i have to do more because i have to prove that it's worth it that i'm here wow and um i think it was very hard for me to (laughs) 
like I've always felt like I have to be impressive. I have to, you know, be the best, all these things. Um, and I also, you know, was the only place I was really getting positive feedback was like for academic stuff and for stuff I was talented in. Um, so I think it's, it was hard to not talk about, it's hard to not be the perfect recovery story. It's hard to not be the poster mm-hmm. kid for that. And once I started talking about it, I was like, no, like today sucked. Like I was working at my job where I tell kids it gets better, but today was terrible. You know, like it's the ability to do that has definitely changed a lot for me. And that's been a sort of important thing to come to in the way I talk about it. Give me some moments of you as a child or an adolescent or even an adult where your interaction with your parents highlights how parents did something right. I mean, there's a lot. Um, my parents, I mean, like, there was just a time where, like, I just, I, like, don't even remember. My life was just a blur of, like, going to different doctors. And, like, they really stepped it up and found the right people to take me to and were able to do that. And that's all um, tied up in uh, the amount of privilege I have and how fucked it is that not everybody has access to that because... um we have a very messed up view of mental health and a very messed up mental health care system in our country. Um, my mom used to come to therapy with me like twice a week when I like couldn't get out of bed. She would like basically carry me in there and sit with me there wow. and like really like drag me through it. And like she was exhausted and it's, and she had moments where I know that it was a lot for her and frustrating for her and she didn't know what to do and the amount of back and forth about hospitalizing me or what do I do do I get pulled out of school do I like how do I do this um but I knew my parents were advocating for me and that was really important and definitely like my mom being there in therapy with me and um advocating for me in the school and being like Jenny needs to be able to leave class to do this this thing is important like my mom would pick me up every day at lunch for like a year because i couldn't be on campus i would call my mom between every single class like she like i she was my lifeline um and yeah Eve jaffe's a rock star that's but like there are a lot of people who would agree with that for a lot of different reasons um and and (laughs) i imagine it was so such a different experience for you because while she may have occasionally been frustrated, the overall vibe wasn't one of frustration. So you could sense that she was advocating for you as opposed to, I am just a pain in the ass. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that came from me and like, um, that, that sense, the sense that like I am, but I knew how much work was going into it, you know? And like, I knew how much my family's life sort of slowed down because of the amount of, special care that I needed. And then there's all these things that like, I only learned about in the last couple of years where it's like, I didn't even think about that. Like, of course that's a thing that was being done because of me. For, um, inst- for instance, um, when I would like came back from college at one point, like for a break or something, 
my mom went out to the store. My sister was going to go with her. And then she like kind of realized I, my sister like turned back to me and was like, oh, no, wait, I should stay here. Right. And my mom was like, and I was like, no, like you can go. I'm like 19, like go do whatever. And my, my sister looked really concerned. <laughs> and then I sort of brought it up to her later. I was like, what was, what was up with that? And she's just like, well, I thought we weren't supposed to leave you alone. And it occurred to me, I hadn't been alone my entire teenage years because I was on suicide watch and nobody told me this, but there was always somebody around. And a lot of the time the burden fell to my little sister. And like, I don't think it was a burden, you know, whatever, but like she took that on and like, it was a collaborative effort. And like, I really wasn't alone. And that was really smart and really good of them and very correct. Do you feel like that brought your family closer together? Or did it put a strain on it or both? I think it, I don't know. I think it, I mean, my family is very close. Um, I feel bad for the strain it maybe put on Brooke, my sister. That's, but I think we've both separately dealt with that in therapy. Have you ever expressed to her how you feel about Yeah. That? What did you say? How did she react? We've just talked about it and I've been there for her in certain ways since then. Mm -hmm. She's a little bit more private than me, so I don't necessarily want to talk too much about her. But, okay. um, uh, you know, the way we've been able to talk about things in, in years since has been interesting. Um, you know, there's... Like, just the amount of, like, small things. Like, I'm a really big musical theater fan. Like, that's one of my sort of, like, happy things. And I realized, like, the reason my mom always let me listen to musicals in the car wasn't because, like, a lot of the, like, I hate, like, listening to musical theater with somebody who hates musical theater. And my mom loves musical theater, but not like I do. <laughs> not like, and then, um, listening to musical theater, uh, <laughs> is something that she was, we were doing because it made me happy and because it was a happy thing for me, you know? Just there were all these little things that I didn't think about. Like, wow, that was a little way that I was being taken care of that I didn't even see. Um, and I see a lot of that in retrospect. And having... What feelings come up when you... Um, you know, I'm just really grateful to my family. And then there's also a lot of sadness thinking about... Um, that sort of young version of myself and I'm far enough removed from it now that it's like, I don't, it's not like an active thought for me to think about what that time was like, but like, I'm very sad to think about that version of myself. I was very, very unhappy. Those were like, I was just in some very dark places in my mind for a lot of my life. And that's a lot for anybody. And it's definitely a lot for a kid. And for so much of that time, like, especially when I think about myself at like 10 years old, I'm like, there's a, there's a little bit of bitterness there, I think. Um, at the universe? Not at the universe. I think I've gotten past it. But for a while, I was just really angry with myself and really angry with my brain and really angry that like I just couldn't be normal and I now know like every, there, I don't think there is a normal everybody's got something you know but I think there was a lot of like 
depression is anger turned inward, some people say, and there was a lot of anger turned inwards. Um, you know, just like that I didn't get to experience a lot of the things people experience as kids and teenagers because I was, you know, so, so depressed and so anxious. Um, and that I then like had to learn how to recontextualize myself as a person who can't, is like, um, capable and, um, any other moments that you want to share about uh, where your parents advocated for you and I'm, you look back in hindsight? I mean, I'm sure there's so many that I'm like not okay. even thinking about. I know. About. I'm yeah. put, putting you on the spot. Um, I mean, I just know like there was the town I grew up in uh, <laughs> is investi being investigated by the CDC for the amount of suicides that happened, actually. Um, what town? I, so I grew up in Silicon Valley. And so a lot of kids of very high performing parents and a lot of kids with a lot of pressure on them and a lot of um, and then that's compounded with the unwillingness of a lot of the people in uh, the town I grew up in to um, talk about anything other than like what's perfect. And everybody kind of wants to have this facade of like our lives are perfect. And, and this ongoing myth in our culture that uh financial privilege equals uh emotional privilege yeah the idea that exactly and the idea that like well if you're rich you're happy i think mm. and people want to perpetuate that myth mm. in, there, a, in a weird way there was this woman who um wanted to work with mother Teresa, and she camped outside her obviously this was years ago she camped outside mother Teresa's uh, hotel room when mother Teresa was visiting the united states and she finally uh was able to uh, come up to her and she said, I want to come work with you in Calcutta. And Mother Teresa said, well, what do you do here in the United States? And she said, oh, I, you know, I work for a theater company. It's, you know, some stupid little job. And she said, no, stay here and work on that because in America, there's a spiritual famine. Yeah. No, I think that's very that's very true. I think the values that people have and had at the school I went to and had sort of in my town growing up were not, you know, it's looks and who has what and who has what brand thing um, and who, you know, has the bigger private jet or whatever. Um, and the conversation isn't like, how do we deal with people in our lives? I've never met so many depressed kids than like, like the kids at my high school self-medicated with designer drugs and there were a lot of suicides after school ended because they had a lot of parents who didn't really pay attention and not a lot of focus on on anybody's inner life um, one, one of the things that is so hard to watch is the a parent that doesn't understand addiction and thinks that the more expensive a rehab is uh the better their kid has of uh getting sober and it just breaks my heart because some of those high-end ones are the sickest most enabling um places you could put any human being there was definitely there's definitely a lot of enabling too just because it's like people have access to whatever they want basically and if your instincts aren't healthy then you're gonna go after it and there was a lot of addiction there's a lot of addiction um you know 
I don't want to make it sound like I'm complaining about having grown up with wealth in America you because that's you are not trima- at all. Okay, you yeah. are not at all. But it is interesting. You're that- making the delineation between uh, emotional wealth and financial right. wealth. And there's an interesting sort of bell curve and um, on one side is sort of the top 1% on one side is people living below the poverty line and those are the two places where there's the most suicide and I think it's because on the one side the ability to get help isn't there and the help isn't given on the other side there's this emotional shutdown i think that happens um because it's like well i'm here so i should be happy now um i don't think we've even remotely touched on the ripples of workaholism in our culture you know we put people on the fronts of magazines because they're billionaires but we never ask the question how much quality time are you spending with your kid can you name five of your friends kids yeah, no, it's true. And like, I think, and you know, one of the problems is like, so the way that it's been addressed in my hometown is a lot of people talking about the amount of stress that kids are under. And I think that is a really worthwhile conversation. I just think it's a different conversation than the mental health conversation. Because for me, I'm like, I really didn't feel the pressure to go to an Ivy League school. I didn't feel the pressure to, you know, get all A's or whatever. But I felt very suicidal because I'm, I'm mentally ill. Um, but it's like, so the attitude of growing up in that sort of environment is, um, it's still, it's still just like nobody was talking about things. And it wasn't until like years later that I heard from people who I went to school with, like, oh, I was going through the same thing at the same time. I'm like, I never would have known. (laughs) I never would have known. I remember in high school, I had a crush on a girl in one uh, weekend, and she had no idea. Um, and I remember um, she killed herself one weekend. And I just remember looking at her empty desk uh, in class and thinking, I-, I-, I couldn't understand how somebody who was attractive um could kill themselves and obviously i understand that now but to my little teenage brain it just seemed like well if you're popular enough that solves all your problems right yeah i think um it's just interesting because i you know i don't know what the perception of me was in high school necessarily and like i think about this a lot like for a while, I was like, well, it was the high school I went to. Like, I was so miserable, like, at this high school. And now I'm like, would I have been happier anywhere? You know, I was going through this thing, and I was going to go through that, whether I was at a private school or a public school or an art school or anything. There might have been places that were a little bit more encouraging of, you know, my interests, a little bit more interested in helping me talk about things. But I think it was just something I had to go through, and it's not a function of any of the external things. It was just what I was going through. Um, yeah. Anything else you'd like to uh, talk about or touch on? I don't know. Where where are we? What are we, what are we, what are we touched on? Um, we're at an hour. Um, you know, we're, we're good unless there's, there's anything else that, that, that you want to talk about because i can't think of anything but that doesn't mean there isn't more stuff to talk about i mean i'm sure there's so much more Mm. i don't know what the i like don't even know where to where to start (laughs) with it um 
the teen years are like kind of a blur or I'd give more details. Oh, I, I totally understand that. But the OCD was just the bigger thing there. And like I talk a lot about the depression, but the OCD was the thing that was like. Talk about the OCD. Um, the OCD was, uh, it's just people think of OCD as being about sort of being very organized and about um, wanting things in a certain order and sort of the hand washing. And I had all that. I had all that too. But what they don't really talk about is the, the intrusive thoughts and the amount that your brain is hitching on one particular thought and often like a particularly upsetting thought or a thought you might not otherwise want to have. You know, violent thoughts. and um, give, me, give me some, if you're comfortable sharing, because I've shared mine uh, on here. Other guests have yeah. shared, you know, I think about, what if I threw that baby off that balcony? Oh, I, if I push like, that person in front of that bus, what would that person's head look like if I chopped it off with uh, the sharpest sword that yeah. that I could find? What if I took a shit right here in the coffee All of those shot? things. Yeah. Like, what if I just had the sudden desire? Like... I still get the thing when I'm driving of like, what if I just hit that person? I didn't realize it. I didn't realize I just like, and then I'll like, even though like they're clearly behind me, I'm like, what if I didn't realize I just like ran somebody over? But yeah, definitely like I'm going to drop this baby or like throw this baby against the wall or like I'm going to yell a bad word right now or I'm going to, what if I just suddenly had the desire to drink toilet water? What if I just started drinking it? It's like, I'm not going to do that. Like, and then there, I mean, there's things, there's things that it's like, I don't think I've ever said certain things out loud just because it's like, doesn't need to be said out loud and I'm fine, but, um, come on, no, <laughs> um, <laughs> this is something I haven't really thought about actually until just now, but, um, I started sort of questioning my sexuality a lot when I was a teenager and I, couldn't tell how much it was OCD intrusion and how much it was genuine fantasy. <laughs> and that was sort of an upsetting thing was like detaching like normal teenage things from my mental illness things. And that was really hard to do in general. Like how much was I'm moody and I hate stuff because I'm a teenager <laughs> and how much is like I'm moody and I hate stuff because I'm suicidally depressed. Like, and that was stuff that became like more apparent later. But the OCD, like intrusive thoughts and like that kind of thing. But it went the other way too. It was like, what if this is genuinely who I am? What if I'm a violent person? <laughs> um, yeah, it's heartbreaking to see people judge themselves uh, based on their intrusive thoughts. It's it's um, so has nothing to do with who, who the thoughts that pop into our head. I think have so little to do with who we are morally. It's I think how we express our feelings that yeah. is so much more important. Were you ever able to uh, find some type of uh, peace around your sexuality? Yeah, very much so. Okay. Um, that's something, but it like took, it was a very late bloomer for a lot of reasons. And that was definitely one of them, but it was, that was something where it was like, it was so hard to just like continue living the idea of like, oh, like dating and relationships and sex like that didn't even occur to me to be something that is in the realm of possibility. Like I can't share a drink with a family member. How am I supposed to kiss somebody? <laughs> like that's disgusting. Um, I caught up. I did fine. <laughs> um, yeah, but it was like a lot of teen stuff like that that I just never experienced, like going on a date 
you know, and it's just like you take some time to catch up. And then I went like zero to 60 and like just knock stuff off the list in college. But how how do you you mean? I think I got to a point where I was like, oh, like had my first kiss, lost my virginity. Let's just try everything else. And then I think I just like, you know what I mean? So you thought in your mind, it's I'm it's going to take me a year to be able to kiss somebody without freaking out about germs. Um, And it. Well, it did, but it took until I was like 20. Mm-hmm. But then I hit like 20 and I was like, oh, I, I, the world's my oyster. I'm 21 and live in New York City. Let's go mess up. And so, and so now you feel like you're in a place where the, the OCD isn't dampening your romantic life. No, def, it's not. And I'm, you know, really lucky to have a partner who's very um, emotionally literate and very um literate about mental health and um a big mental health advocate himself and you know stuff like that so that's all like that's nice that's really nice that's so good very lucky somebody in your corner really good and it's great too because it's stuff like you know we kind of watch out for each other we both have our things and um like he's just very intuitive about stuff like oh like when you wake up screaming in the middle of the night you don't necessarily need anything just like a reminder that you're in this room and then you fall back asleep and um and that's really nice because i think beyond just like the ability to kiss someone i was really worried that i would be a burden to anybody who wanted to spend too much time with me which i think is part of the reason like i'm going to make myself as easy to get along with as possible and it turns out people like me and that's crazy (laughs) i don't have to i that's real that's crazy to me and they like me without me having to make an effort to the point of being obnoxious. <laughs> a revelation for me was that when I get vulnerable, it's not a burden to people. It allows them to also be vulnerable with me and let a part, a heaviness within them be released and to help me improves their self-esteem because they get to experience meaning and purpose. Well, you just, you never know who might be needing to hear from somebody else what they're feeling so that they can express that too. And it's been interesting, like the friends I've made and the people who I didn't think I had anything in common with, who I've gotten to be friends with, like doing mental health advocacy work, because suddenly it's like, I had no idea this person who I thought like everything was perfect. You, you Like the thing is, I've just learned like everybody's got a thing nobody's perfect like nobody's getting through this thing unscathed Mm-mm. and it doesn't matter what it is and you can just form much deeper friendships when you're not trying to create a facade every step of the way yeah. so yeah it's cool i like being at the place i'm at now i feel good about that i'm wondering if i took my prozac today and like realizing like maybe i didn't but i should I finally broke down. I got one of those pill, you know, morning after morning and night uh, pill dispensers. And I I love it. I'm on the least meds I've ever been on right now. Um, So I actually like it's great. I don't need that for the first time. But you can imagine the amount of meds I was on because I was on a ton of stuff just and then I I had the stomach issues that was a result from the anxiety and all that. Like I had the little pill minder things that Mm -hmm. like old people have when I was like 16 
But for a little OCD kid, that's kind of the best. Like, I was very stoked to, like, line up my pills in there. Like, that's, to me, like, the nice part. They're, the benefits to my OCD are, like, I'm very organized. You know where your shit is. I know where all my oh, shit is. Yeah. I'm, like, uh, really addicted to my planner. Like, very, I hesitate to say addiction on this show or anywhere. No, but okay. my planner is, like, my my favorite thing that there is i just want to like i get to like add little stickers i have special like colors and that those are the places where it's like oh this is nice because this is fun for me and yeah like, this isn't degrading your life this is giving you a little piece of joy and comfort. yeah and but you know sometimes it comes up and i'll realize like oh like the reason like I am thinking about this thing in a way that is not healthy and is tipping into an OCD thing, and I'm going to try and pull that back because I know that's a thing I do. I have to keep check. I have to kind of check in on myself a whole bunch because um, it, sometimes it's like there are fears that are productive and help you get things done, and there are fears that are obsessive fears, and that's not that's, helpful. Uh, that's one of the sorry to cut you off but uh that's one of the things that i get from meditation it, it introduces me to what i've been thinking about mm-hmm. lately because in an attempt to clear my mind the thoughts that keep popping up are usually the things that um obviously i'm worried about or in fear about or you know whatever for me it's like the difference between checking the news is okay it's okay for me to see what's going on in the world it is very different for me to google world war three plus north korea nuclear bomb and see what comes up because i'm trying to scare myself and obsessing about a thing and going after that information and like i have to remember that i have the tendency to do that um yeah (laughs) anything else that's that's, that's, mo- that's most of the size covered, and shape of it right now. We, man, cut, we, 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 we bounced around. We covered some, some great ground, and it's really refreshing to hear um, such advocacy in a family, um, supporting somebody and, through such darkness. And man, oh man, have they stepped up to the plate after. Like, my parents have taken on so much mental health advocacy work in so many other ways just since then because of what they went through with me and because of their own interests and um because of you are okay and because of all kinds of things and they've been doing real they continue to do very cool stuff and are really positive forces in the world and i hope that one day i get to do that kind of stuff too (laughs) uh your twitter is at jenny jaffe uh, J-E-N-N-Y-J-A-F-F-E. Um, TheJennyJaffe.com? Yeah. It's because I couldn't figure out how to edit JennyJaffe.com, so I have both. Okay. It's not very up-to-date. Go to my Twitter if you want to see what's going on with me. Okay. And uh, Project U-R-O-K. Um, letter U, letter R, letter O, letter K, yeah. dot org. Yeah. It, we were acquired by the Child Mind Institute last year. Um, which is an amazing organization uh, in New York. And um, so I'm not involved in the day-to-day anymore, but it's being run day-to-day by Sarah Hartshorn, who is a queen. And uh, she, uh, we the site has been more or less on hiatus since the acquisition, while sort of just like a bunch of things were being, a bunch of content was being banked and a bunch of reorganizing was being done and structuring and, 
figuring out sort of the future of Project You're Okay, but I've seen a lot of the stuff that's coming out in the next couple of weeks, and I am so excited. Mm. Um, yeah, really cool things. So Awesome. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you so much. Many, many thanks to Jenny. And this episode will soon be transcribed and available on our website. Many thanks to Accurate Secretarial for donating their time and helping out the show. Uh, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways to support the podcast if you feel so inclined. Uh, you can support us financially um, by making either a one-time uh, donation uh, through PayPal or becoming a monthly recurring donation. Uh, donor through uh, either PayPal or Patreon, and I recommend Patreon because then I can give you uh, things back as thanks, little videos or maybe extra mini episodes, uh, stuff like that. So um, I'll put the links to all of that. You'll see it on the show notes for this for this um, episode, but um, I really need your support, and um, there are is a way that you can also support us. Uh, two other ways you can support us financially. Uh, you can donate frequent flyer miles. And the way you do that is uh, actually all of the things I'm mentioning. If you just go to uh, our website, mentalpod.com, um, and go to the donate, uh, or I think it's, yeah, donate. And then you um, can either donate frequent flyer miles or you can do the one-time or recurring um, PayPal or Patreon uh, donations. You can also, uh, on our homepage, click on the Amazon logo, and then if you're going to buy something at Amazon, they'll give us some money, and it doesn't make what you're buying any more expensive. And all these little things add up. You know, you can become a monthly donor for as little as a dollar uh, a month. So it it means a lot to me. And um, you can also help us non-financially. Here's a great way. Go to iTunes and write a review. Hopefully you like the show and it's a positive review, but that boosts our ranking and brings more people to the show, which um, brings up the chance, makes it more likely that advertisers will advertise with us. And I couldn't do this show without you guys, and I couldn't do this show without advertising. So both of those are uh, really important. And uh, I know there was a, another way, but yeah, let's be honest, you're tiring of uh, my groveling right about now. So let's get to some surveys. This is an awful moment filled out by Helpcat. Your, your guys' names are the fucking best. Uh, I did something I don't normally do today and participated in a Facebook meme where using words that come out of your phone's predictive texting function. So like you build sentences out of words you use often enough that your phone suggests them to you. And every sentence I came up with ended with the phrase, I'm so sad. <laughs> that is awfulsome. Thank you for that. This is uh, a shame and secrets survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Joe from Sweden. And let's see, he's straight, 37 years old, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, he writes, my parents divorced when I was about 10 and growing up wasn't easy with what uh, I in my th early 30s discovered was a slight case of Asperger's. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, yes, and I never reported it. 
Uh, he writes, I feel like you would think that I was sexually abused by my ex since she seemed to use sex as a lure to keep me coming back to her, and I might not disagree with that. Have you ever been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, he writes, uh, emotionally abused. My ex-girlfriend um, had severe daddy issues. Uh, she was four years younger and mommy issues alike. Her mother is a narcissist and was never there emotionally. And her father started seeing her when she was 12. And after that, they wanted to be a parent. After that, wanted to be a parent, but never knew how. I thought it would be an exciting daddy-dom-slash-little-girl relationship, but I was plunged into very deep waters. The relationship was mutually violent, but she refused to agree to end it. After hearing your conversation with Luisa Omilan, uh, I better understand why. She would promise to discuss things, but would postpone it endlessly, eventually for months. She wouldn't let me leave to go home for two or three days at a time and would even take my shoes with her into the bathroom so that I couldn't leave while she was in there. Perhaps the strangest thing of all was how her supposedly level-headed, quote, best friend demanded that I stay in the relationship to mend what I had broken. This can easily make a person doubt whether they're in the right to want to leave. After two years, I finally ended it in early 2016. And... 2016, and she came to my door for weeks, often in the middle of the night. The last four times she came around, she was escorted away by police. I still freeze whenever there's a noise in or outside my apartment, and I think I have PTSD. My paternal feelings were awakened by this woman and played like a fiddle, as was my sexual attraction to her. I am now in a romantic relationship with an old friend, and the difference is like night and day in every way. She says she can't even imagine me angry because we have never quarreled in the 18 years that we've known each other. You know, when I first read you describe this, um, I, I, I judged you because I read, you know, you, you write, you wrote, she wouldn't let me leave. And, you know, I wanted to butt in and say, or I should say comment at that point and say, nobody was stopping you physically from, from, from leaving, you know, you were just giving in to her guilting you or her manipulation. And then I realized, fuck, I, I am victim blaming because just because you're physically larger, and I'm assuming you're physically larger than your girlfriend, who knows, maybe you weren't, but um, is usually the case, the, the male in the relationship is more physically imposing. But after hearing stories of people who have been afraid or unable to leave abusive relationships, it's the mental overpowering, the emotional overpowering that the other person does that is, quote unquote, pinning them down. So um, that's just amazing how, how, as much as I like to think that I'm this person who doesn't have any um, prejudices or biases and sees the world clearly, um, I caught myself uh, almost getting a little angry uh, at you. And that's... um, I can't imagine the things that people aren't trying to become more educated about domestic violence would would say in response to this you know for instance there was a an uh 
a piece in the news this week about uh, a woman who was arrested uh, for rape. She entered a taxi cab with two guys, and one of the guys held a knife to the driver, and she uh, performed oral sex on him. And I could just hear in my head the bad bits that stand-up comedians will be doing about this and how fucked up it is that people don't know the truth that men get traumatized by unwanted sexual experiences. Um, and, you know, the bl- blowjobs have become such a punchline for, oh, you know, wife with a wife doesn't want to give me a blowjob. It, um, I don't know, just kind of reminded me how we're still in the dark ages in terms of how we view trauma to and by both, both sexes. Continuing. Any positive experiences with the abuser? The sex was the best I've had, and I still fantasize about it. She was generous with money, and I still use and appreciate several things that she gave me. And the paternal feelings die hard. I still feel like she's my little girl, even though I never want anything more to do with her and have moved on romantically. Darkest thoughts. Sometimes I wonder if my willingness to stay home and enjoy nobody's company but my own is exaggerated and paradoxically robbing me of vital contact with other people. Uh, darkest secrets. The highly sexual age play with my ex has made me interested in young girls in a way I think I shouldn't be, but I feel in no danger of realizing my feelings, and it's most likely a passing thing that will resolve once I get through the initial trauma regarding their relationship. Um, By the way, going back to your previous thing about um, staying home and enjoying nobody's company uh, but your own, that is a common, um, a really common ripple from people who have experienced uh, unwanted sexual experiences, either involving touch or otherwise. Most powerful sexual fantasies. Uh, They are about my ex and the things I wanted to give her but couldn't. These fantasies culminate in a sexual act when they don't fully comprise a sexual act. Sex with her was emotional on a level that I've never experienced with anyone else. It seemed very important and emotionally satisfying to her to have a certain type of sex, and I fantasize about giving it to her to make her happy. I do this practically every day. It's like an emotional safety valve for me. Sharing this makes me feel happy because I keep formulating it better and better. I'm confused because it almost sounds like halfway through this, you're talking about the partner that you're with now because you say, I do this practically every day. Oh, I suppose what you mean is is the coming up with a fantasy about how you could please your ex and it's making you happy that you're getting it better and better. I see. Um What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like it to be easier for my family to say that we love each other. 
well, what if you tried and uh, were the first one to do that and went in without any expectation of any of them uh, responding how you'd like them to respond? Just a thought. What, if anything, do you wish for? Right now, I mostly want resolution of this emotional baggage from my previous relationship. I also wonder if it's what's making it unusually hard for me to sleep at this time in my life. Again, I'm not a therapist, but I once cooked a casserole uh, for a Tom Hanks movie that was made in the late 80s. So I think I can speak on complex relationships. Um, I have a feeling that the difficulty sleeping goes even deeper than this ex of yours. I have the feeling it's about feelings you pushed down as a kid and your ex is a representation of them. And that's why it's so emotionally potent um, being around her, why the sex is so intense. Because maybe she represents something in your life that that you would like to go back and and redo because it was painful. And if you disagree with my uh, opinions on this, uh, please just go ahead and contact Tom Hanks directly. I would have you uh, contact uh, the bulldog Hooch, but uh, that dog's probably dead because that movie was made a long time ago. So contact Turner. That's what I'm telling you. Not Turner, the company I work for. Turner of Turner and Hooch. Wow. This has spun out of control. This is... And thank you for sharing uh, sharing that stuff. I appreciate it. This is an awful moment filled out by covertly fucked, overtly sick fucker. And he writes, smiling as I listen to Wonderful World by Sam Cooke. I remember that this was the soundtrack to a Levi ad that my mom reenacted with me. I was stripped to the waist in the bath as she took my photo, and I now know this was the start of my sexual abuse. The lyrics go, I do know that I love you, and I know that if you loved me too, what a wonderful world this would be. Shame she didn't and doesn't, and shame it isn't. Wow, that is heavy. That is heavy. And, you know, there's there are support groups for uh, people who've experienced that. And if you want to know more, uh, I can put you in touch with, with, with someone. So email me about that. And thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That is really fucked up. And I'm so sorry you had to experience that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Sad Salad. I always get that when I'm at TGI Fridays. I enjoy the sad salad. Uh, I usually get it with a fake crab. There's just something about that that makes it even more sad. Uh, She is straight. She is in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, Never been sexually abused, but she has been emotionally abused. My parents divorced when I was four, and I was raised by my mom. My mom was emotionally neglectful and verbally abusive, and I'm pretty certain that she is a narcissist. I remember being six years old and wondering on a regular basis why God would allow me to be born if my mom hated me so much. That's when I became an atheist. My mom would never hug me. I always had to hug her first, only to have her shoo me away in seconds. A few days before my 17th birthday, my mom told me that 
that having me was an incredible burden and that her life would be so much more enjoyable if she didn't have a child. I don't remember my mom telling me I love you until I left for college. That is so fucked up. That is, your mom is a very, very sick person, and I'm sorry that that's the mom you were dealt. Any positive experiences with the abuser? I came home for my birthday last year. I'm in college and have always stayed in college, my college town for my birthday weekend uh, to celebrate with friends. I was severely anxious and an emotional wreck at this time, and I think my mom could see that something was very wrong. My mom told me, if there's something wrong, you should tell me because we are family and family can help you through difficult times. I sobbed silently for an hour because I was touched and couldn't believe that my mom would say something so kind. I wished so desperately that she could have said something like that when I was a child and craved her love and attention so deeply. As much as I wish I could say that her saying that made me feel better, it didn't. I think she meant it, but I don't think she is actually capable of offering that kind of support. Moreover, the contrast from her usual tone only made the gaping wound of my childhood feel more raw. You know, I I had a a moment at my grandmother's uh, funeral where um, they were singing a song. They they, they had a little choir uh, hired to sing um, some gospel songs, and they were amazing voices. And it was a really really small funeral, um, and I started crying. And I think everybody probably thought I was crying about my grandmother, um, but I was really crying that this is my family. And, um, you know, not not my brother. Um, it, it, I suppose just the lack of um, being able to talk about emotions. Um, and this was years ago before, I think this was prob- probably before I even got sober. This is probably 15, 16 years ago. But when you said that, that just reminded me of um, how how sometimes we just will experience a moment of clarity in seeing something so clearly. And it's usually something that an outsider could, could glean in five seconds, having never known you. Have you ever seen that? Like you see a, a, a family in a restaurant and you just see a five seconds of their interacting with each other and you're like, oh, I, I know a lot more about them than this, just this five seconds. Um, anyway, continuing. Now I'm in my head about making that about me for that second. I'm going to let it go. Mean DJ voice is pounding on the studio door. I refuse to let him in. Darkest thoughts. I want to move to Europe without telling anyone, not my family, not my friends. Darkest secrets. I lie about everything. Past boyfriends, fake diagnosed medical conditions, embarrassing moments, cringeworthy dates, personal anecdotes, plans and trips... Uh, I don't have and haven't been on some lies I've been telling for so long that I'm practically convinced they're real. I don't remember when I started lying so habitually or absolutely no reason 
for absolutely no reason, but it's gotten to the point that I catch myself in the middle of the lie on a daily basis. There is no one on this earth that I haven't told a serious lie to. Not just, sorry I'm late, I was stuck in traffic, but let me tell you about my high school cheerleading competition in Arizona. Lies. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to be dominated by an older, powerful man, preferably a professor of mine for a very difficult class. I want to perform sexual favors during his office hours in exchange for an A. Cash and presents would be nice, too. It makes me feel like maybe I need to start doing more online-slash-app dating so I can set up these kinds of arrangements in real life. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my parents, I would say, fuck you for fucking me up. I would tell them that they should have never had children if they were not prepared to make sacrifices or be less selfish. I would tell them, at least you weren't beaten and you were fed and had a roof over your head are not adequate parenting benchmarks. Well put. Well put. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for personal growth and recovery. I just started going to counseling, and I want nothing more than to feel happy and light again. I want to move past all this shit. Right now, I feel like I'm drowning in it. Have you shared these things with others? A few friends and my counselor. I feel like I have to dole out my sadness and dark thoughts in in small controlled doses for fear of overwhelming them. I'm overwhelmed with it myself, so how how can I expect anyone else to feel any different? I think it's, 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 you, you hit on a great point that it is important to not burden one person with a huge, uh, um, amount of stuff on a continual basis. Um, and to, and to maybe try to spread it around a little bit, but, you know, also kind of check in with the people that you're sharing this with, um, you know, ask them, is this, you know, too frequent, you know, or, or just try to be aware of their boundaries and that they also have separate lives and stuff like that. It's a weird, it's a weird line asking for help, but not imposing on somebody else because most people do want to help. They do want to have vulnerable moments where they experience a sense of purpose in their life by just listening or helping another person. Um, But if we grew up without boundaries, sometimes it's, we do that black and white thinking thing where it's like, I'm either going to be by myself or I'm going to sit down at coffee and talk only about myself for six hours. Uh, Thank you for sharing all of that. And the fact that you're in counseling right now is a really, really good sign. And um, just hang in there. Hang in there. It a lot of this takes takes time. A lot of two steps forward, one step back. I think Jenny said that in the uh, the episode. Um, this is an awful moment filled out by uh, an agender person who refers to themselves as uh, themselves themselves. I don't know. I should have studied as uh, L. And they write, I was borrowing a car from my parents when they used mine for the weekend. I was driving home and my car engine caught on fire at a busy intersection between an interstate exit and a large state road. It was horrible because there was a fire in my car and black smoke was visible for several miles. But I was laughing 
because I realized I didn't have any shoes. I love that. I love somebody that can laugh in the middle of something that would normally make us uh, shake our fist at the sky. This is a shame and secrets survey filled out by a guy who calls himself, I like big butts, though I usually lie about it. He is straight in his 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment, uh, never been sexually abused, never been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, he writes, my dad did some shitty emotional things when I was a teen, but not enough to say there was a pattern. And both my parents made me feel consistently safe and loved up until those years. So it didn't have any short term or lasting effects. I now totally understand that he just didn't know how to deal with a sullen, geeky, pensive teen. Darkest thoughts. Whenever anyone is inconsiderate to me or anyone around me, I wonder if the world would p perhaps be better off if I were to kill that person. After all, people never have bad days, and acting inconsiderate once obviously means they are considerate across the board to everyone at all times, right? It's easy to make fun of those thoughts, but sometimes, I think he meant to say, uh, obviously means they are inconsiderate across the board to everyone at all times. It's easy to make fun of those thoughts, but sometimes it's a little scary how reasonable they feel in the moment. Darkest secrets. I spend entire days, up to a week at a time, at work, just staring at my computer screen. Not even playing games or browsing the internet, just doing nothing. I just don't care enough to do my job. Even though it's at a non-profit organization that I care about, and people out there in the real world, out getting services they need as promptly as they should if I were to do my job. It sucks how depression causes me to act directly in opposition to my moral compass. I wouldn't even mind feeling guilty or ashamed about it if the guilt and shame were to prompt me into action, but it doesn't. It sucks me further down. I think a lot of us can relate to that feeling of just being trapped under that gray blanket and um, I think that is a great sign that you should look into um, getting help for this because you sound like a, a good guy and um, that's that's where we go man when when we get catatonic that's that's where we go Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm very attracted to women gaining weight. I fantasize about my girlfriend, who is already around 280 pounds, gaining another 100, 250 pounds, and fucking her while I look at a picture of her taken at her current weight. The thought of comparing the size of her ass from now to the hypothetical future is the part that's attractive to me. It's not even the process of gaining weight that I like. It's the fact that I like large women, and it turns me on to think... I thought she was hot back then, but that wasn't even close to as good as she looks now. Sharing that makes me feel conflicted. On the one hand, it'd be nice to be honest about my fetish more often, especially to my girlfriend, but I care about my girlfriend's well-being far more than I care about my sexual fantasies, and I know my girlfriend would not be healthy at that weight. I'd find her most attractive. Most of my concern is that if I bring it up around her, she'll feel pressured into obliging me, and I really don't want her to feel like she has to choose between her health and my sexual satisfaction. You really do sound like a good guy, you know, that you're uh, that you're aware of that. Um, um, 
is a, a good sign that you that you are empathetic and you know to me that's like a perfect example where uh, it it's a healthy fetish because you're not letting it degrade your life it's something um that brings you pleasure and and you seem to understand where the line is where it would move into harming other people so high five to you man uh, have you shared these things with others? I've told this stuff about work uh, to my therapist. She said something along the lines of, well, it makes sense for someone with depression to behave that way, which felt pretty good. I once told my girlfriend that I have a fetish for girls, quote, getting bigger, and that that's the only time I've spoken about my fetish out loud. It was during one of those great early relationship get-to-know-each-other talks that lasted until around four in the morning. I only mentioned it in passing, and it felt pretty bad to admit. I don't think you should feel guilty about that. Um, doesn't sound like she judged you. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like, I really want this to be read out loud in an episode. Well, mission accomplished. I desperately want to express myself, my thoughts, ideas, my feelings with as many people as I can. But as you can probably guess, a guy who can hardly make himself do anything doesn't tend to get a lot of attention. Thank you for sharing that. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a mentally ill social worker, and she writes, I was recently hospitalized for severe depression and suicidal ideation. I was at my rock bottom and felt trapped by the darkness. During my stay, we had many groups, some more lighthearted than others. One day, the therapist introduced a word-guessing game where with each wrong guess, a stick figure loses a limb. One other patient asked if it was like hangman. The therapist promptly responded that we do not play, play hangman on the psych ward. At the time, this was the funniest thing I had heard in months. Another patient and I laughed to the point of tears and with the joy and freedom that I hadn't felt in months. I'm not sure why this somewhat morbid statement made me laugh, but it did. And it felt so good. It was truly awfulsome. That is fantastic. I love those moments. I love those moments. That's what I like about my support groups because I get those all the time in my support groups. And people who are new sometimes in a support group will be like, why are they laughing at that guy crashing his car? And it's hard to put into words to say why, but maybe it's because it's it's not happening anymore and that person is now getting help and they turned a corner and... And maybe it's that we all identify and that it helps release some of the shame knowing that we're not the worst person on earth. Um, I don't know. This is, uh, I've been doing these lately. Uh, the question, how would you use a time machine? These, this is just a single question from the um, I shouldn't feel this way survey. And I'm just going to read a series of these by different people. Uh, this person says, I go to the future to see if my kids turned out okay and see how much I've fucked up. Another person says, I would look at myself growing up in a dysfunctional family with a mentally ill mom and a passive dad who preferred uh, to suppress the fact that she was ill rather than doing anything to help her or shield his children from her behavior. 
I would experience everything again, but this time I would have my grown-up self with me, making notes and understanding things as they unfolded. I would have my grown-up self as an ally. I would spare myself from the agony of feeling so alone with my experiences and struggling to make sense of them. I would spare myself from so much confusion. I would tell my younger self that it was okay to be upset about my mother's behavior, that it wasn't me who was crazy, and that her well-being was not my responsibility. That's one of the most beautiful ones I've read. That was really... And it seems like, in a lot of ways, our a lot of our work in getting better, those of us who experienced difficult stuff as children is to do that to that little kid that's still inside us. And as much as I hate the phrase inner child, I think a lot of us would agree that it it sometimes feels like there's emotionally like a little kid in us that is is, uh, steering the ship sometimes. So the question is, how do we do that in our adult life? How do we, instead of shaming ourselves, you know, How do we comfort ourselves, guide ourselves, be that parent that we wished we'd had? This person writes, uh, I'd use it to see 42nd Street, New York City, when Bird, Diz, and Miles were gigging with Monk and Tad Dameron. Dameron? Dameron? I've heard of the rest of those guys, but not uh, the last guy. Another person writes, I would like to see my funeral, the I have a dream speech, and I don't know, maybe some medieval shit. <laughs> the the first two, I totally get the casualness of the medieval shit. Uh, it just fucking made me laugh. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, I'm just picturing you walking from the uh, Washington Monument uh, on that on that uh, that day, walking back to the time machine, going, "All right, man, uh, what next? You know, maybe some medieval shit." This person writes, "I'd probably try to figure out who DB Cooper was or the Zodiac Killer, but if I had it long enough, I'd probably go back in time to watch my teen self having sex." So please don't give me a time machine without proper supervision. Uh, This person writes, I go back in time to find the person who warped my mom into a controlling, possessive, and emotionally abusive parent. Uh, If I am successful, unsuccessful with with convincing them to leave my young mom alone, uh, then I will visit six-year-old me on the night that my dad lost custody of me and all visitation rights. I will hold little me and tell her, it's okay, mom didn't mean it when she said your dad didn't love you anymore. She has wounds she hasn't healed and doesn't know any better than to lash out on someone weaker than her. Thank you for that. That's that's pretty, that's pretty profound. And I imagine there are so many people that relate to that one. So many people who were pawns in a in a divorce where one or both of the parents were sick. 
This person writes, I go back to 1953 and give Vivian Lee and those who loved her someone to lean on. Uh, I know she was an actress, uh, but I don't know much beyond that. I think she was in Streetcar Named Desire and maybe Gone with the Wind, but I don't know what, uh, what her struggles were. But I will look into it and I will report back. This person writes, I'd go back and just watch my uncle be himself as much as my eyes and heart could absorb. The uncle I loved and watched die when I was little, who everyone tells me I'm just like now. Wow, that is so bittersweet. Uh, this person writes, probably go back and see some of history's most influential and legendary bands performing in basements in their infancy. That, or go back to the 20s and 30s and witness the boom of cinema. That's a great one. I love that one. I've shared on here before that that uh, my two favorite musical time machines would be seeing Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli playing in a cafe in Paris. I know that sounds incredibly pretentious, but I swear to God it's the truth. And the other one would be in be in Abbey Road when the Beatles um, were recording uh, Revolver. Actually starting with help and going up through Sgt. Pepper's. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to get greedy. with It's my fucking time machine. This person writes, uh, am I invisible? Question mark. Because I definitely perv out and spy on hotties in the shower. Uh, this person writes, I would use it to go back and annihilate all those who had their way with me when I was a kid. If only murder was legal, I would have off them a long time ago. And a bunch of exclamation points. I'm sorry you experienced that. This person writes, I go back as many times as I could to try to learn for myself about world history. That's a great one. I would love to know the real deal on shit that has two versions or multiple versions, uh, so that I could report a version that nobody would pay attention to. Uh, This person writes, I'd watch myself to see if I am as crazy as I think I am. That is a great one. uh, I'm kind of afraid to see that one. I'd be kind of afraid to see me at my worst moments. This person writes, I go back to when I was my young self and really spend more time, quote, being. That one I fucking love. That, this sounds like a person who has done like a lot of um, self-reflection as opposed to self-obsession. Man, when the when the times that I can just be present and, uh, you know, like today, I was in the backyard with the dogs, letting them out, and I was feeling that sadness that I tell you about, and I just tried to be present, you know, didn't look at my phone, I just tried to look at the dogs and think about how much I love them and look at the trees and notice how green the leaves are and listen to an airplane going by or feel the 
wind on my face, and it helped. You know, it didn't take it away, but it just, uh, you know, maybe turned it from like a, a boil to uh, a simmer. I'm regretting that choice of is it a metaphor. I can never figure out what the difference is between a, a, a uh, metaphor and an analogy. All right. Uh, this person writes, well, I'd like to know what happened to that four-track home recording cassette tape that disappeared in 1987. And if the world would believe me, I'd probably look into bigger mysteries that society at large seems to wonder about who killed JFK and such. I'm going to be honest. I think we want to know why that four-track home recording cassette tape is still on your mind. I want to know what was on that. Uh, this person writes, I really wish I could go back and see the last time I hugged my sister. She committed suicide in 2011. Just one more time, I'd like to hear her say how much she loves me and how proud of me she is. Thank you for sharing that. It never ceases to amaze me how many people... Uh, take their lives who were really sweet, sensitive people. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, that That is like the definition of bittersweet right there. This next, next person writes, I don't think I'd have much use for it uh, to tell the truth, but if I had to, I'd geek out over Catalonia in 1936, to be honest. I'm going to take a wild guess. Is that in Spain? And was that during the Spanish Civil War? No. I, I, Of course, I could look it up on the Internet, but then I wouldn't hate myself for not knowing. And then this last one says, I don't want a time machine. I would rather know what it feels like to experience life from inside the brain of someone who doesn't struggle with anxiety and depression to see if it feels better than the way I feel on a daily basis. And I think 99% of us just, just nodded our heads and said, yeah, that one goes to the top of my list. Um, this is an awful moment. Uh, <laughs> this fucking name. This guy calls himself Finger Blast from the Past. Uh, and his awful moment, he writes, I'm sitting in a job interview and the interviewer says, we're looking for someone with great attention to detail. Someone who's a little OCD. Would now be a good time to tell them that I was let go from my previous job for wasting company time compulsively checking things to make sure that I wouldn't murder one of my coworkers? Instead, I just replied, that won't be an issue. That would be great to have a machine where you could read the thoughts of the interviewer and the applicant in job interviews. I suppose you could do a sketch on that. This is an awful moment filled out by Forgotten Gypsy. And she writes, 
You have mentioned your mom giving you a bath at 12. It triggered a memory of my son when he was 12. It was the year his dad got him his first dirt bike. He had a pretty bad wreck on it. He stumbled in the house and his arms and legs were tore up and bleeding. I, being a nurse assistant, rushed into what needed to be done. I took him in the bathroom and told him to get in the bath so I could clean him up. In that moment, my son looked me in the eyes with panic. I know he wouldn't tell me no because I'm his mother, but I could tell he did not want to get undressed in front of me. He froze. In a few milliseconds from that look, I read my son's inner conflict. So I told him it was okay if he wanted to leave his shorts or underwear on. I just needed to clean his legs and arms. Relief flushed his face, and he climbed into the bathtub with his underwear on. I cleaned him up and bandaged him and left so he could get out uh, out of his wet underwear. In a way, I laughed because to me it was silly he left them on, but at the same time, I wanted to cry because I knew I lost my little boy and was getting a man. I had to be more careful to respect his privacy and boundaries. He is now 19. We have a very close relationship. I am proud of the man he's become. He always praises me that I am the only one that he can tell what he's feeling, that can tell what he's feeling. But I think he tells me, just not with words. He is my biggest accomplishment, and I love him. Thank you for sharing that. That uh, obviously um, um, meant a lot to me to, to hear that. This might be one of the best names ever. This is a happy moment filled out by Cock Waffles. Hold the waffles. <laughs> and um, before I read, she, uh, do you have any comments to make the podcast better? Uh, while I understand that reading surveys on the fly mostly goes unnoticed by us, please try not to stumble through them or point out typos. Instead, since you are reading from paper copies, it may be helpful to make notes on them ahead of time so that you can more clearly convey them to listeners instead of making us feel silly for not noticing a few errant keystrokes. Please know that I realize this would never be your intention, but it can be incredibly scary to unburden ourselves of secrets and having mistakes pointed out for thousands to hear makes wanting to air those secrets even more daunting. I totally under... I do make notes before I uh, before I do this, but sometimes um, things... Skip, skip through, and when I'm tired, because I do this, I record this part of the podcast uh, at night. Like right now, it's almost uh, 11:30 on on a Thursday night. Um, it sometimes my um, my eyes, I don't know what the word is, but they almost like cross. I should probably go see the uh, the eye doctor. But um, I hear, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Um, maybe I could try a little harder. And uh, and I do not feel shame. I am proud of myself. I am proud that I can take that in. And I know it, this sounds like there's a joke about to be made, but there isn't. That is one of the gifts of all the fucking work I have had to do honestly that i that i had to start to stay alive but that's the beauty sometimes of having a condition or an addiction or something that we 
have to work on is that then it helps us in these other areas of our life uh, or our lives. Um, and then this is our, her happy moment. My mom has two brothers, one of whom we're not close to at all. Long story. Uh, my sisters, moms, and my involvement in the lives of that brother's family basically extends solely to Facebook friendships. This brother and his wife had a video camera back in the late 80s, the kind that weighed 700 pounds and had to be carried on your shoulder. His son, my cousin, has hours of footage of our whole family from that time frame. He recently uploaded some to Facebook, and the first was from September of 1988. I believe that's the year they made Turner and Hooch. Uh, I don't, I have no idea when they made that. Uh, I was five and a half years old. The clip he uploaded was about 30 seconds of our grandfather picking me up and talking to me. He died in October of 2003, and when I watched this video, it was the first time I'd heard his voice and laugh in 13 years. I cannot convey how much I cried and how much this video means to me. My cousin later uploaded a few more, and I was able to hear our grandmother's voice as well for the first time in almost 12 years. I was very close to these grandparents, and part of me died when they did, but now I can hear them speak and laugh whenever I want. Although they're gone forever, I now have a little piece of them, and it's more than I ever expected. Thank you for that. And then finally, this is... um, This is a happy moment, and this was filled out by uh, Lipstick and Lithium. And she writes, This week was my dad's birthday, so my parents, sister, and I went out for a nice dinner together. After dessert, as we were waiting for the check, I suggested we each share a special moment we've had with my dad. First, my mom and sister shared some great moments, and then it was my turn. This moment had come to me earlier in the day, and I began to tear up before I even spoke. I'm going to cry, and I'm sorry, I said. When I was in my early teens and I first started to feel sad and I started to have episodes and I would cry and cry and be a helpless blob on the floor, you never shamed me. Dad would pick me up off the ground and put me in the car and would just take me for a ride on the backcountry roads until I felt better or at least more stable. I feel so lucky to have been raised by you both mom included, in a way that made me feel safe and supported both physically and emotionally. I looked up and my entire family was crying. Everyone joined hands in the middle of the table. We must have looked crazy in this fancy little bring your own beer just sitting there sobbing, but we didn't care. I thanked my dad for teaching my sister and I what a real man is, one who is caring, compassionate, and supportive. Even at 31, my dad is still the first person I call if I'm going through a crisis and need to be calmed down. I am really lucky to have such amazing parents. That is uh, that is just so beautiful and so fitting for uh, our, our episode this this week. And it's it's nice to be reminded that there are so many parents out there that are doing the right stuff and. They can just be there for their kid, even if it's just listening, you know, even if it's just holding their hand and looking them in the eyes and saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here. I know this sucks, but we will get through this instead of trying to change what they're feeling. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you guys. Thank all of you guys for, for your surveys and your support. 
and all of that uh, stuff. It means it means the world to me. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just never forget that you are not alone, not by any stretch of the imagination. We are all in this together. And um, there is hope and there is help. It just involves us getting out of our comfort zone and reaching out. And I'm glad that I did because I wouldn't have met all of you and I wouldn't get to do this thing that I love. And uh, for that, I'm really, really grateful. And you're not alone. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.